Um, and I'm imagining here, maybe in post-edit, we will uh, come in on some, like, uh, weird Eastern European, you know, fucking uh, music uh, that sounds like, uh, it's like the Mayor Pete song, but with this with long and drawn-out <laughs> gypsy singing. Just accordion high hopes. Yeah. A mournful high hopes song. It's the Gogol Bordello cover. Low mm. hopes, 1904. <laughs> um, hello. Um, hello. I can't do the voice. Greetings. <laughs> and welcome to Pot Damn America, the gothic socialist podcast uh, for los... I only know how to do it in Spanish. <laughs> no, just do it. Just finish it in Spanish. Para los niños estúpidos. Welcome. For the stupid children. Um, hi, I'm Jake Flores. Anders Lee is here. Anders Lee here. All the way from BC. Alex Patak is here. Hi, and we're doing a book report. Hello. We're doing a book report. <laughs> and to help us with that, uh, welcome back to the show. Special guest from Chapo Trap House, Matt Chrisman. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey thanks for having me. Of course. Um... Yeah, this should be good. We are going to talk today about the young Stalin, both of the book and the person. And the man. <laughs> um, this book, I feel like, went around on Twitter maybe like in like two or three years ago. Well, that's Because the of thing. the cover photo. Because of the cover, because he looks like a Bushwick guy. I assumed <laughs> that this book was a meme because the picture on the front is a meme and so i messaged matt being like of course matt will know the meme book and then he was like no i haven't read that no one's read it and i was like oh good point so let's all read it yeah and then we'll do it only everyone's only seen the hot young stalin picture where he has a cute <laughs> scarf and blow blown back model hair yeah, I feel almost weird talking about it because I guess I was also operating under the same assumption that, like, this is kind of, um, you know, everyone already knows all this stuff. We all read all this or whatever because everyone has the core history of the Russian Revolution or whatever. But actually, it's old. Um, this book was fucking crazy. And I think the sort of explanation of it by the author when he put it out and it only came out in 2007 does sort of pose an argument that, like, yeah, no, most people probably don't know about, like, the early, early life of Stalin because all of this shit he's drawing from, all the do documents, are were declassified at some point uh, fairly recently to, you know, to where he was able to look at, uh, you know, all this just weird shit about the seminary school he went to and stuff. He only just got his hand on the documents. On the documents. No <laughs> one had seen these documents. So, um... I don't know. This book was fucking crazy. I'm really glad I read it. It was one of the funniest things I've read all year, which I didn't expect, just because Stalin's life was that of a Looney Tune or like a um, <laughs> just a r ridiculous. He was a cartoon man. <laughs> he was uh, like Boris Batinoff carrying around a big round black bomb with the fuse coming off of it. Yeah, yeah. It was all like that specific era of like slapstick. He I technically guess. did half of uh, his antics before Bugs Bunny got to them <laughs> because they're one to one like escaping jail by wearing a dress and saying hello handsome to the officer until you're allowed to leave. <laughs> like that just worked at the time. Yeah. Uh, That's we'll all get comrades. into that. But my only uh, attempt at being smart about this book, I guess, or divining any meaning from it, I guess, is that for me, when I read it, I was immediately a little conflicted because reading a biography about someone who is such a seminal character in history to me is almost a little bit counterintuitive to having like, 
you know, a big scientific, broad materialist understanding of what happened in history because, like, it's it's tempting to buy into sort of a, a short-sighted, like, then-then-then narrative and, uh, and, and chalk up a lot of these crazy things that form the world we live in today to one person's eccentricities and to try to get really heavy into counterfactuals. What if Stalin didn't do this then or whatever? Um, and it also, I mean, the book is written from somewhat of a, you know, just a normie reactionary point of view. The guy the whole time in the book is kind of going like, isn't this crazy how normal this guy was before he became the evil Stalin? We all know. And thus his shadow grew. Yeah. It's all framed in this conventional wisdom. And, um, it's also like, like fixating this much on the personalities and the inner lives and qualities of these political figures, you know, there's a mirror of it in like what we're doing with these political candidates that are running for president right now and that we're like looking at their, you know, their inner qualities and their stats or whatever and their personalities. Um, and it's, it's all it all betrays like a, a, a bit of a misunderstanding of like uh, just of historical analysis or whatever. Or well, like what yeah. what causes the world to be. Hold, let me just get my point out. Sure, on these. sure. I'm completely done. Do not interrupt, Jake. No, sorry. <laughs> I just want to get this out because I, I have a big but after this but stalin is a fucking weirdo he's fucking weird and when i read about his early life it reminded me a little bit of another biography i just read which you can make an argument that this person's weird grievances and uh you know inner turmoil did cross over into their political actions that affected the world and that was uh nixon land i just read nixon's nixon uh, Another a, nasty little toad. A biography of Nixon where, you know, it goes through, like, just his weird shit where he was, like, um, mad at a few people he went to college with and then formed, like... The Franklins. Yeah, and then he formed a gang of nerds. The Orthogonians. <laughs> and you can pose an argument, you can draw a line between that and then, you know, these grievances that he exploited later on when he was president and he was trying to manipulate, you know, various people in his base and various grievances that they have. So with Stalin, you start off with this picture of how this weird kind of um, uh, sociopathic fanatic was born. And there are parts of this book where, like, a Chechen guy pisses him off. And then, like, in the footnotes, the author, you know, poses the, the uh, possibility that this might be why he went on to deport all these Chechens later on when he was mad. Well, with throughout power. the book, there are all these little notes whenever they talk about somebody who crosses him. In any way, the the author is sure to remind you in a footnote that they are going to get murked. <laughs> like, oh, this guy thought that uh, Stalin thought he stole 70 rubles from him that he was going to use to escape from Siberia. Uh, in 1937, he was shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that exact note. And to me, that almost reads like, like a short-sighted, like that's bad analysis, that's not a good take. But the fact of the matter is Stalin had so much power. Yeah, but- he was a unique individual in his ability to literally be the life and death over everybody. Nobody really had had that kind of combination of control and access where he could, and, and he could like put out anybody's lights in the entire country that he ran. That's yeah. pretty unique. That's a degree unique of power. Yeah. And he often is power. compelled to. Yeah, and so I guess that's this is my whole fucking thing for this episode, I guess, is that's that's why actually a biography of him is act is kind of interesting because this is a case where you can connect his specific little events that happened to him in his life and his specific little personal foibles 
two things that affected history. That's I, it. I think I do think though that there is a materialist point to be pulled from this book. Whether or not it was the intent of the author, I feel like they make the case consciously or not, and it is this. I don't know. We could argue about whether it's correct, but I do think that it is materially based. It's like it's approaching history from a from a structure from a material perspective. And that is that the main argument that I think he's making, not specifically about Stalin, but about the milieu Stalin grew up in, is that the Bolshevik party, when it came to power, was indelibly shaped by its experience as an underground uh, terroristic political mm. movement during this period. Right. And that the, the, culture cre- the culture of paranoia and suspicion and, uh, and absolute uh, you know, distrust that permeated those organizations never let up their hold on the party even after they took power throughout all of the so- the book became the Soviet Union. Right. And the point that where Stalin emerges is to say that because that like the mob like he, like uh, Stalin's job was basically a mob boss in the Caucasus during the 1905 revolution. So his the type of person who thrives in that milieu is going to be the person who takes it over. You know what I mean? Right, right, exactly. Like like he was the most mob-like guy for a system that ended up making everybody feel like that even yeah. after they took power. That's why he for was sure. valuable too. That's the, the right. systemic yeah, explanation yes. of how this ball ended up at the end of the pachinko machine. Exactly, exactly. He's like, also, why he ended up in, the, in charge. Yeah, for sure. And then why he governed the way he did once he was there. Also, he was good at existing in conspiracy. Conspiracy. And it's like the assumption that everybody is out to get you because when you're in a clandestine organization like that, those sort of questions are life or death. If somebody is an informant, you might be dead, literally. Mm. But in, in a, it's this thing where you have hegemonic power, individual betrayal can never be that existentially threatening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it doesn't require that sort of complete psychotic system response to it right because you've got control of the whole country you know what i mean yeah you, know, you can kind of lighten up you're, you're not working in a terrorist organization where half of the paid members are actually officially cops exactly anymore yeah um, there's also kind of an interesting like uh note to that which is that you know even if you do achieve this absolute power where you can finally relax by climbing to the top of this crazy paranoid system within conspiracia or whatever You've destroyed your brain. Oh yeah! At the, by the time you get to it, so absolutely, you, you can't relax. No, no. It's like what posting is for us. Yeah, doing terrorism was for them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're, you're like Gene Hackman at the end of the conversation, just ripping the fucking drywall. Over. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have one point to make before we get into the thick of things, which is another uh, emphasis on the material uh, angle of the book, which is the the author is a historian, Simon Seabag Montefiore. He has a book on the older Stalin called uh, Stalin, Court of the Red Tsar. And he's clearly not on team pro-Stalin, which is okay uh, because he does such a good job uh, fleshing out all the details in this book. And although he's going on this angle, kind of like a last podcast on the left of the biography of what he considers to be a serial killer, it's also a fantastic counter-argument to the main thrust you have against you as a communist in America, which is, oh, you want America to be a communist. Do you want it to be a fucking uh, beat-up shed like the Soviet Union was? But by reading this book, in all of the Bugs Bunny shenanigans that go on, you realize, materially, you could never have an, another state that works the same way this state worked. 
in terms of just how things are run due to the like rate of technology, due to the way things were set up then. No, that's that's absolutely correct. Russia was the country that had a revolution in 1917 because it was the one country that was in Europe and was part of this, you know, modern era where there it had never had an industrial revolution. It had never created a middle class of any kind. It was purely just a mountain of peasants in a very thin strata of, of uh, aristocracy. Just that people that, in the mud. Yeah, and so what that meant is that there's what, what I think Marx didn't even anticipate and what happened in Germany, the country everybody thought was going to have the revolution because it right. had the most advanced and most self-conscious working class. Problem is, is that that creates incentives among people in the working class to get jobs, you know, in the union bureaucracy or uh, in politics, uh, you know, in the, in the parliament. It creates like its own, like, uh, it creates this class of people along, who are not, who are part of the, who emerge from the working class but don't have working class interests anymore, you know what I mean? Who've kind of been co-opted into the system. Yeah. Which is why when revolution came to Germany in 1917, the uh, people who put it down were the socialists. Because they had so much buy-in in the system that existed, that never happened in Russia. The 20th century dropped in Russia's lap in the form of World War One, on the lap of a feudal society, basically. Right. So there was no middle class antibodies built up, so they could just take take over the host immediately, and that had very specific uh, consequences for the state that emerges from that kind of uh, that kind of violent disruption. Class interests. You can see a mini version of that kind of replaying whenever, you know, a socialist quote unquote candidate gets its way in the news now. Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, the entire media class of people who are well set up are not thrilled to see it. Now imagine everyone is literally like an uneducated uh, uh, cartoon farmer and is trying <laughs> to overthrow everyone and chop their head off. You get that times a hundred. And that's what this wacky ass book is about. Yeah. And just to speak to Alex's point a little bit about uh, how this you know this could only happen also in this specific time just outside of all the material historical stuff that Matt was describing there also is just a specific level to which this guy Stalin was able to operate in that like I think the, the author points out at one point if if the people tracking him if the czar's people had yeah. computers oh, yeah. it would be none of this would fucking happen. yeah <laughs> but it was just the fact that they were like keeping track of this dude that was just hopping all over the fucking map, jumping in and out of trains and boats and no, shit, wearing women's clothes, and they were using note cards. Before, like, before at the turn of the century, being a criminal was so awesome. God damn. Because know, there was right? no way to catch you in any real sense. <laughs> like, there's that John Mulaney bit about, like, they, fi they find a dead body in the street, and right. the guy's yeah, like, this hey, is there's a bunch of the, the killer's blood here, and he just goes, yeah, gross. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's Back to my hunch. And they shoot the name of the gang and yeah, bullets on the wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Better shoot our name in the side of the wall. Yeah, but you're just like, oh, I'll just escape here. Because they didn't have any institutions, which means even though the Akrana was a very uh, relatively sophisticated uh, uh, operation considering the time, it was still wildly understaffed and underpaid. So the idea that they're ever going to be able to cover a country the size of Russia, especially when they at all times like half of their dissidents were supposed to be in exile but were in the process of escaping – Right. Meaning that there's no way you could know where they were. Yeah, exile seems like it was just that they send you very far away <laughs> under the assumption that you'll walk back. Yeah, and then exactly. Get out of but here. it'll take Catch a while because it's really fucking big. <laughs> it's literally adult timeout. They put you on adult timeout when you're bad. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. it's like just think about it for a few minutes. Uh, 
Um, although another present reality of the book is, uh, so you, you hear all about how easy it would be to do crime and shit. And you're like, oh man, I wish I lived in 1890. And then you realize you would probably, if you are reading the book, just be dead. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you got any illness at any point in your life, I got whooping cough in October. Both of us <laughs> had whooping cough. You'd both be done for. Yeah. By, by the way, whooping cough is the only correct way to read this book. If you do not have whooping cough, you do, are not in the right mindset. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm a fucking C-section kid. I would not have even existed at all. Yeah. I would have been like blown up on the fucking runway. They, would, they wouldn't have let Anders exist back then. Absolutely not. I, Anders, you would be legally a horse. <laughs> <laughs> or he'd be their ruler. Yeah, yeah I would be other. cannon fodder. I guess Anders would just be like a cool street guy. <laughs> Plus, his uh, dad was pretty pretty gnarly as well. Like, not only did he he'd have to fight out smallpox, but his dad would just beat the shit out of him. Yeah, yeah. Okay. His father's okay. commitment to his son not being educated, <laughs> yeah, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, just to be that single-mindedly devoted, be like, my okay. kid is never going to learn to read. All that, right, let's that, just do this. Yeah, let's get into the timeline because that character does rule, and he'll come up like immediately. We're going to talk about this extensively. Okay, so right. the, the young Stalin. Here we go. My book report. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we start at the beginning. We have uh, Stalin-born Joseph Jugashvili. He's born in Georgia. In the Caucasus, in the town of Gori, in 1878, and a small like side note, the author puts at this part that immediately clarified everything for me is if you're an idiot American like me and you don't know anything about European countries, he's like, if you don't know Georgia, it's just Italy but Slavic. Italy, it's true. <laughs> it's yeah. a and passionate it's the people. The first culture to grow wine. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. And yeah, it's also sort of far away from the rest of Russia, where he would later live. Like, I, I think I read that where he lived in Georgia was closer to Baghdad than it was to St. Petersburg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of racism towards people from the Caucasus, yeah. which he ends up, like, promoting when he's in power. He's sort of like a Napoleon figure in that way, you know, from Corsica, way in the periphery of the French Empire. Mm. At the end of this book, they're talking about how everyone in the Russian Revolution wanted to be Napoleon at the same time. Yeah. And I think that is a very good summary of the situation. Yeah. Napoleon complexicated. <laughs> he's born in Gori. And to give you the kind of idea of uh, what kind of place Gori is, um, they have a holiday every year because it used to be a military training base where, uh, like the purge, once a year, um, all fighting is legal and every man in the village goes out and fights in the streets and all the priests are refs and that just goes on until the, the uh, swinging is done. The referee priests, I should also note, are drunk. Yeah, it's everyone is shit in the book that if you need to get the rules worked out of a fight you're in, you grab a drunk priest who's just sort of standing in the middle of the town wearing like an orange vest or something, like the guy you go run to in laser tag to fix your pack. It really does show you, though, that uh, at that point, Georgia, which had been just incredibly buffeted by violence in the Middle Ages because it was at a strategic juncture. Uh, you know, in the st connected to the steppe region where all these fucking, you know, Mongol hordes were r running back and forth. They were invaded by the Mongols and the fucking Golden Horde and Tamerlane. About 200 years nonstop warfare. Now, that's a culture that has like collective PTSD. Where you just got to rumble in the streets to get it out. You got to fight it yeah. out. Yeah. It's truly an anime town. And, and I mean, you it, it. it is crazy, but he describes young Stalin being like, you know, like 10 years old and being in this town where like during this holiday you form teams and stuff. And it is brutal. And it is for us to think about like a 
little kids doing that. It sounds crazy, but I remember being a kid. This sounds very fun. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, it, that'd it be great. Ass. Remember King of the Mountain? Yeah. Oh, man, that was so much fun. It's like that, but with adults. Dude, when I was a kid. <laughs> they could play. At recess, we had a, like a month-long just organized thing where we just threw rocks at each other. We just had a rock fight game, and someone eventually won. There was a whole bracket to it and shit. That shit has to kick ass for a young man. Also, it probably formed him into a bit of a monster, but uh, uh, pretty this, cool. This is the one quote I took out here. Uh, in his childhood, his this is his friend, uh the priest's son, where is it? Kota Charkviani, he says, uh, referring to Stalin, there's hardly a day when someone had not beaten him up, sent him home crying, or he hadn't beaten someone else up. And that is uh, after we, he becomes crippled at a young age with a, uh, like, bum left arm. He got hit by a horse cart. <laughs> he gets <laughs> Phaeton. <laughs> he gets Bob Dold because he uh, later went on to keep a pipe. In his, I think it was a right, his right hand. Yeah, he would keep a pipe. Yeah, in his kind right of, hand he bobbed all the shake it. Yeah. And Bob Dole did the same shit with a pen. When it's I true. was reading it, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be like a, um, uh, a Frida Kahlo situation where there's this big defining injury, but it seems like it just made him kind of mad. Yeah, he continued yeah. to fight his whole life just without being able to use an arm, which the, is some real boss shit. The fact that he has one John McCain arm is something you forget <laughs> early on in the book, and then later on you're reading about like just hundreds of bank robberies, and you're like, these people had no idea the guy couldn't use one of his arms when he pointed a gun at them. Shoot him on the other side. <laughs> yeah, literally just hit him on the fucking on the right side of his head or whatever. All right, let's get into the Freud stuff here. Okay, so... Uh, he is born to uh, Kiki Galadzi and Beso Jugashvili. Beso O'Rourke. Who is a local cobbler with his own business. And they had tried to have several other children who all died of old-timey diseases immediately. Yeah, of course. And so when their third one finally comes out, they're like, this is our special boy. We have a boy. He is so good. Look at him. <laughs> he's a star, star in his eyes. And Make I, him shoes. And on that moment, his father looked at his eyes and said, I swear to you, son, you will never learn to read. <laughs> I will die before I let you open a book. Yeah. Uh, his mother, Kiki, worked around town. Uh, she did She did uh, cleaning at the... Uh, she worked around town, all right, yeah, according to some of the rumors that they talked about. <laughs> right, right, right. She was doing work at uh, the police chief's house, Damien Dav- uh, Davrichui. There was another man, Koba Ignatashvili, who was known as the local wrestler and innkeeper. Uh, who delivered the baby, and she also hung out around the priest, Father Charkviani, a lot. Hung out. And all of them might have been Stalin's father, and no one knows. Yeah. There was just this local strongman, which is so hilarious that that's even a thing in this time period, is every town just has like... You had to have a big, strong guy. I am strong, Koba Ignatashvili, and I assist (laughs) in making young Stalin. Remember, entertainment had not been invented yet. Right. So, like, hey, who's the strong guy in the town? That's entertainment. <laughs> People love oh, yeah. that strong that's a, guy. That's a season of prestige television. <laughs> Watching him pick up a cow? Yeah, oh, like, my God. <laughs> who could pick up a larger child? <laughs> yeah, it's three weeks before the child fights come back. So now, you know, it's when we watch Koba Ignatashvili pick up things. Koba, he is so strong, he reached into any woman and grab out the baby. Oh, this town, <laughs> just the entire time I was reading about it, it reminded me of, like, a Zelda game where there's just these vaguely Eastern European yeah, you just- you're like, like flute pipes. 
types. You yeah. get a quest from me. <laughs> I need you to pull an egg out of someone's head. I did imagine all the bars that he goes to. It's just on the top of barrel heads. <laughs> they're like, yeah, you know, they're elf wenches. Serving <laughs> <the mead. laughs> um, so. The gossip that this kid could have had three to four fathers is immediately all anyone in the town can talk My about. My three to four dads. <laughs> and in kind of a heartbreaking way, uh, his supposed father, Beso, immediately goes insane with jealousy. You will not read. My child will not get educated. Well, a ba- I will kill him first. Beso, the, the cobbler. who Beso O'Rourke. The Beso O'Rourke, who at first <laughs> is sort of this working guy the who's, swearing who's successful he's proud he makes fucking hella shoes he's got this kid with his wife who was supposed to be barren you know and uh but then everything's going great but then suddenly John he seems to realize that he's being thrice cucked by a strong man a cop and a priest right He's like just set up to start every of a joke. Yeah, <laughs> terrible, terrible joke, and it's on him. Yeah. And so he just starts getting shit-faced. Yeah. He just becomes dedicated to alcoholism. In a way that we have to respect in this day and age, he drinks in, uh, day and night until he loses his business and starts wandering around town, developing the official nickname in the town of Gori as Crazy Beso. <laughs> Crazy Beso, half off all appliances. All the, all the shoes. All like, Wacky, wacky waving, crazy baso, inflatable flailing tube man. Uh, he's just fucking. He's out there. He's like breaking windows. He's just showing up at these people's houses, being like, "I know you fucked my wife." <laughs> There's only like a hundred people there, so they all talk about it. And we, we he, can't make him bored. He, he beats up poor, poor young. Poor young Joseph. I'm sorry. These people are Borat. What are you talking about? <laughs> Very Borat. No, he got beat up by his dad a lot. So this is another thing about his like his uh, his forming brain and him eventually sort of becoming someone who smashes the idol of Christianity and replaces it with the idol of Marxism. And his, he there's something. Arguably Freudian going on with the fact that he's got this very complicated like guilt and pride thing going on with his working class dad, who he you know at first he's kind of ashamed of, but then like when he becomes like a tanky teen in the seminary school, he sort of has a change of heart. He's like, oh, it's actually really cool that my dad's you know makes shoes all day, but then his dad's crazy and, and his, his dad keeps going, get out of school, right? <laughs> Stop being educated. We do not want you to know anyone. I hit you. In head until you forget letters he's probably <laughs> internalizing also in this weird in his understanding of like whether it's good or bad to be poor this weird shit where his abusive father is like you know go to school <laughs> you only do shoe you work with me in basement with shoe okay. you never go outside it is just for shoes yeah. Your life is shoe like mine. <laughs> I just love the idea of a parent who is like, yes, I would be incredibly jealous if my kid got to experience anything better than I did. I insist that my kid have the exact same shitty life as me. And he he We're, takes out all of the cuck rage directly on poor young so-so, uh, which is what Stalin has called almost the entire book by everyone. As a baby, he's at one point thrown on the ground, and it like breaks half his bones. 
Uh, he's just beat up every day, every time he sees his dad, until his dad eventually, uh, in a drunk rage, breaks all the windows at the local tavern and stabs the policeman <laughs> with a cobbler's tool. Oh, dear. And is forced to leave the village. <laughs> there's a, there's a sad passage in... I read the Court of the Red Czar, and there's a, a very sad passage where um, Soso is getting five rubles a month for being a choir boy. I don't know what their priorities were in that village, but he was getting paid. <laughs> and his he's walking home, and his, his dad just comes up and says, Young man, you've forgotten your father. Give me at least three rubles. Don't be as mean as your mother. And then Stalin oh, just no. says, Don't shout. If you don't leave immediately, I'll call the, the police. And so he just like goes away, and then he never sees him again, and he dies. He takes his thrusters. singing rubles. Yeah, that's right. I, Crazy Beso is either the cobbler, the Adam Sandler movie, or. Go! <laughs> or, Did you see that movie? I like why well, I fell asleep Netflixing it. Um, that shit's wild. It, he's like a magic shoemaker. <laughs> that's the first twist. First twist is that he is a, he has a magic machine that allows him to live in the shoes of anyone whose shoes he wears. And then at the end, you find out that his father, who you thought had like walked out on them years ago, is actually part of a long tradition of superhero cobblers who use their <laughs> abilities to fight crime. This is why Crazy Beso is so crazy, because yes. he's trying to explain the... Spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't brain. seen The Get Cobbler. out of school and learn to <laughs> yeah. cobble shoes. But that is a mind blower. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Directed by the guy who directed the Oscar-winning film Spotlight. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think he did it back-to-back. Back. <laughs> I believe of those were, like, wow. in order, the films that he directed. Well, maybe he knew something we didn't about Crazy Beso. Other I was going to say the other, okay. other vibe I get from his Al Bundy because he's like, he's angry that <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah, shoe I guy. hate life. Life hates me. <laughs> with the shoes? The yeah. shoes? He's a Perfect. fucking shoe salesman and he beats someone with that thing you measure your shoe, your foot with in yeah. Foot Locker. Those are sharp. Yeah. I bet they are. And Kiki's like, ah, this, oh, come on, let's have sex. <laughs> yeah. He's like, uh. No. <laughs> How about no? No, Kiki. That was a good show. I watched the hell out of that show. That show fucking ruled. Honestly, really great. Might do an episode about that show. Uh, I, got, I, have, I haven't seen it. I have some, I'd it's love like, to see it. Uh, I, was, I guess I'm a sexist, but if, if I'm talking early 90s working class sitcoms, give me Married with Children over Roseanne. Well, I'll say it. I, Scandalous. I think, I'll say it. Not to go off on a tangent here, but I think that Married with Children achieved what Roseanne attempted in that it attempted to be an anti-sitcom and it attempted to do what, like, sitcoms are propaganda for the suburban weird right. wife yeah. and a kid dream. Roseanne yeah. was like, what if we show actual working class people? Whereas Married with Children created a full-on inversion, like, black comedy where it's like, no, this is what life actually yes. is like in this situation you're trying to trick people into buying into. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, yeah. I'm yeah, going to go on a different limb. episode. I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say The Simpsons counts. And then... Yeah, yeah, Simpsons Ooh, in yeah, yeah Simpsons one. for sure. Yeah. Good. But I'd still say Simpsons number one, obviously, but then i go married before Roseanne. And Beso would be Milhouse's dad. Okay, let's get back to <laughs> Stalin. <laughs> can he can't borrow a feeling. feeling. <laughs> he can, in fact, borrow a ruble of feeling. <laughs> He's recording on, like, a harp. <laughs> Kiki is the hot uh, blue-haired cartoon. Um, so sh here's something you have to understand about his little uh, 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 nesting period here, is that in his early life, he knew nothing but pain. Uh, not only is he on part of the, like, 
mob style child fights in the street he gets a very dangerous case of smallpox when he's six and he's hit as we said earlier by a carriage at the age of 10 (laughs) goes into a coma and then just like can never use one of his hands again so it's somebody who's very used to pain getting it and giving it to other people and then at the age of 12 his entire class is forced to watch a public hanging so that they don't rise up against the state Uh, And that radicalizes him to be a revolutionary for the rest of his life. And that is also how Lenin's brother was executed, which radicalized him. Yes, it was indeed. Shout out to Lenin if you're listening. That was a turn-of-the-century version of the thing where they make you go to the the cafeteria and a local, like wrestler rips a phone book (laughs) don't do drugs kids (laughs) so this man stole one muffin crack (laughs) they hang him he is a weird kid they have this whole part where like for example there's this picture on the back of the book of him when he's like 10 in this line of boys because uh he arranged a school picture at the age of 10 uh got everyone together and paid the photographer by himself (laughs) to show off what a good choir boy he was he was a bossy little dude which uh history aside is some real psychopath shit that you've got to respect that's the mayor pete energy i think we can all agree that's little mayor pete yeah this part of stalin's life reminds me of this uh this guy i knew growing up who had like essentially a trap house run by like teens and tweens and it was all run out of his grandmother's house who was clearly just dying and senile and had no idea what was going on uh jesus christ yeah his name is greg a fucking harmony Corinth movie. <laughs> yeah but this Shit. guy who was like in you know ninth Ugh, grade was able to out <laughs> fuck you would do shit and you'd go jesus christ well, how the fuck did you do that you're you're you know 15 you have a lot of get up and go yeah uh so stalin he's got a lot of chutzpah he's a young entrepreneur he's very familiar with violence and he also has the most beautiful singing voice anyone in all of gory has ever heard the funniest thing to me about all this is the contrast between all the bloody knuckles and violence and abuse and like him kind of forming into this hard ass and losing his innocence and doing all these weird extracurricular activities but then also voice of an angel (laughs) (laughs) and killing it in school also a actually quite talented poet, apparently. Oh, a yeah. nationally recognized poet. A nationally poet. recognized poet. Someone who probably, if they'd committed to it, had been... Because that was a time when poet was a job you could have. Yeah. You know, you get some, you get a, a couple of sponsorships. You, you put out a monograph. You could actually make a living doing that back then. Especially if you were in, like, a national mode where it's like, ooh, he's the... He's the new Georgian poet of the moment. You get Nike uh, supporting your rhymes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think. So obviously the big, the two big antagonists in World War II are Hitler right. and Stalin, right? Yeah. They both were the children of distant, uh, alcoholic, violent fathers and uh, cloying mothers, right? Yeah. And they were both artistic spirits. Hitler, a painter. Yeah. And Stalin, a poet. Stalin, according to this, was a much better poet than Hitler was a painter. I believe it. No one has ever rated Hitler's paintings as anything above, like, hotel room level mediocrities. Hitler's thing is just hand turkeys. He was a... (laughs) (laughs) Stalin was a genuine talent. So maybe that's why he won World War II. 
Fair. Because he was better at his <laughs> art than uh, Hitler was at his. Well, the, these, like, criterion we're describing of having the fucked up uh, overbearing mom and yeah. an angry dad or whatever are, you know, arguably overlapping in that uh, those five big points that you take to get a serial killer. Yes, the McDonald's scale. If they piss the bed, then, then you know. That the homicidal triad. They're they're right next to Ted Bundy or whatever. Bed, bedwetting, arson, and torturing animals. Torturing animals. Yeah. Which it didn't, it didn't go into much of that. I mean, I don't know nearly as much about Hitler, but my general take from reading all the Stalin stuff is uh, Stalin, even though he's very violent and kind of base, is also recognized as like a generational talent and genius. Whereas everything I know about Hitler is like, this fucking dumbass is on drugs. Well, so, uh, <laughs> they talk about how Stalin is an incredibly good student, even though he's a d- delinquent who's always in trouble yeah. for doing like really violent like pranks that actually harm people and are dangerous. But he's still at the top of his class all the time. Hitler was absolutely a mediocre student I at am all times. So fascinated with the seminary school chapter of yes. of Stalin's life because it is just Hogwarts. It's wonderful. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's like a dark Hogwarts. He just has this like headmaster that he calls the black spot that hates him. Yeah. And you're what you're saying, like all these things describe maybe the origins of a super creative thinker, a super atypical thinker. You could maybe say that that's why like Hitler and Stalin both were fucking a little bit wacko and applied it to all these things or whatever. But he was not a fucking he was not a he was a geek, not a freak. He yeah. was not a dropout. <laughs> no. He wasn't trying to leave the seminary school. He was trying to use the concept of education like he was like, fuck this. I don't want to read about God anymore. I want to apply this to like Mark to use it shit. as a weapon. Yeah. His education is the only reason he could cut it as a revolutionary. So he uh, has all this like chutzpah in his hometown as the singing boy with the golden voice <laughs> or whatever. But there's nothing for him there because, again, this is just mud huts. So what they do is they get the whole town to chip in money to this poor woman who's been abandoned by her drunk husband. And they you get do him. not educate my boy. <laughs> <laughs> Who was just out on the outskirts of town, like shaking his fist at you them. You do not educate my son. <laughs> he must not know anything I don't know. And because no one knows... Uh, who his father is for sure they just say he's the priest's son so he gets to go join the seminary school and that's when his magical boy adventure really begins that's where he's recognized for his beautiful voice yeah, this is where he's kind of turns into the harry potter of georgia <laughs> <laughs> he uh he he starts writing his poetry as Socello, the famous poet uh, becomes nationally nationally recognized. He's very religious until his first year at seminary school, where um, it's very um, what's the word rebellious to read books back then. I guess yeah, the thing that got everyone in trouble was reading books. Yeah. You are you better not be reading books over. <laughs> it there. was such a stultifying, <laughs> tyrannical intellectual uh, uh, milieu that one of the quotes in the that I remember is someone said that 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 seminary made more atheists than all of the secular colleges in the world yeah that is also just true of any catholic school as far as i'm concerned yeah especially this one well what's interesting about that to me is that there is there's something that um my friend luisa does their podcast what talks about a lot which is like um different types of iconoclasts and like the concept of people having idols and then wanting to either become a type a iconoclast which is someone who smashes idols and then you know, sort of becomes a no secret cows comedian type person who's like, you know, don't worship anything. You've had the wool pulled over your eyes. A lot of those types of people, ah, the clown. A lot of those types of the comedians, noble clown, are ex-religious people like yeah. Kurt Metzger, like 
famously describes himself as having escaped a doomsday cult because he's from like a fucking weird small Christian thing or whatever. But there's a second type of iconoclast, which is someone who smashes an uh, uh, a what did I just say idol and then immediately replaces it with another thing. And so with Stalin's forming years in the seminary, I think what's kind of interesting is that he within one year figures out that God isn't real. But at first, he goes into the thing wanting to be a priest and wanting to buy into you know Christianity and sing all these songs or whatever. And as he goes on his little Harry Potter adventure and discovers these forbidden texts and starts organizing, reading these books, he seems to be somebody who replaces the concept of an explain-everything ideological lens that they're trying to teach you, which is God, uh, with just that same thing with Marxism, which... You can make the argument, and people often do, that Marxism is the only ideology that really fits on all you know lenses like that, and is you know whatever the immortal. It's the, science. the sweet it science. It's called. <laughs> yeah, box. Yeah, like boxing. It's um, the boxing of thought. But that's what makes him such a powerful fanatic. That's what makes him probably on some level, like in his early teens. A fucking you know crazy manic uh, online tanky type person who is like we got to read more and more of these books or whatever. Um, and it, I would say also combined with these serial killer origins we're sort of examining in his you know his fractured personal life creates in him this fanatic that's being portrayed in the book later on even in that like uh, one thing that he has in common with a lot of the his other big you know theory heavy revolutionary contemporaries is that they abandon their personal lives and often like will fuck women and go listen i would stick around but the revolution is more important yeah. uh they become She's their like, main woman pilgrims of this thing so he, in this in this short time he spends in, in the seminary school he manages to become like a different version of the priest that the school is trying to produce. Right. And sailors do this with the sea. <laughs> um, well, that's a lot of that is because the model of the revolutionary that most young Russians at that time period followed was the one from Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done. Yeah. Uh, that was the foundational text uh, that, that gave the blueprint for how you are to behave if one is to be a revolutionary. Uh, Lenin adored it. He wrote, he wrote a, a book with the same title as a reference to it. Stalin loved it. And it's because uh, it tells you to be like this revolutionary aesthetic. And it's very similar to being like a traveling priest or something. Like you are a crusader. And it is like tinged with like religious devotion and self-mortification. Because you have that same, even though it's a materialist religion, you're still saying forgo material be- goods right. in pursuit of revolution as a higher calling. Like, that is spiritual. Like, you know, that is a mystical communion. He's extremely devoted to uh, his craft, but he's just in trouble the entire time he's at the school. And it's not trouble like the way your American brain is designed to think. Like, if you're a bad boy at a high school in America, you're, like, probably dealing drugs. Yeah. Or you're, uh, uh, like, a hooligan for the hockey team or something. Every time this guy gets thrown in school jail by the black spot, it's for either reading the wrong kinds of books or going out and organizing workers at the factory, which is crazy you can do at, like, 17, but apparently it works if you get over there and tell them you know how to read books. Well, see, this is something I was thinking about today because we're now, I think, the 50th anniversary of Fred Hampton's murder, and, like, it feels like that's the most dangerous 
thing for the sort of the capitalist state is to have a clandestine organization, outlaws who are armed and also reading shit like Marx, you know, and we don't really have that in the same way. Uh, but that's like, no, because they acted. killed Fred Hampton, right? <laughs> they, we had one and they murdered them, yeah. <laughs> which is something this society failed to do because it was a bunch yeah. of peasants and fucking you, fancy. Land. If you think about it, if they had instead of sending these guys uh, uh, to an awkward, uh, you know, vacation home in Siberia <laughs> that they would be able to escape whenever they wanted to, if they just shot them. Uh, how would you have had a revolution? It's a, it's an open question. Which is also something that Stalin learns very well, because when people are in trouble for him later, they do not get to go on vacation. Oh no, he understands. <laughs> it's like you were fucked up by not pursuing ultimate uh, security by way of fucking murking everyone. You who played you yourself. Oh, worried. Do 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 do. Your kid. What up? What I used to be dope. <laughs> Remember Jug Judgment Night? Anyone? It's a great movie. Even better soundtrack. One of the first rap, 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 rap rock. Rap rock. Obama. It was rap the rock. first time rap, rap met rock. Rap rock Obama. Yeah, it did. Rap rock Obama. Rap rock Obama. Wait, who was Judgment Night again? That's Dennis Leary, Jeremy Piven, uh, uh, I think Stephen Dorff, Cuba Gooding Jr. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a RV full of dudes is going to fight night in Chicago, but they take a wrong turn and they witness. Gang leader Dennis Leary <laughs> murdering one of his, uh, his underlings, and then they chased him through like the industrial hell of, of South Chicago. Uh, to, and yeah, that's the movie. And there's rap rock. Oh yeah, I watched that. I used yes. to work at a video store. I've never heard of this. It rips. All right, I'll have to check it out. Hey, you guys have read the book more recently than me. Is the seminary school in Tiflis? Or does he move to Tiflis? Actually? No, he moves to Tiflis to go to the seminary school. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so he leaves Gory. He leaves Gory his to go like to the Tiflis yes. backwood home to go to kind of the, the big happening. city, the big city <laughs> in Georgia, which yeah. again is Italy, but in Russia <laughs> and like southern Italy at that, not like Renaissance city state ass northern Italy. You can no. replace Marone in Pez a lot of peasant ass Calabria ass southern Italy. <laughs> Uh, so he's eventually thrown in jail at the end of uh, his seminary school for doing organizing and doing praxis. Uh, and that's where he kind of, you know, forms his adult self and becomes a made man. He officially joins the uh, Social Democratic the Labor Social Party. Social Democratic Labor Party, baby. This hot and upcoming. It's so order. hot right now. Social Democrats, so Any, hot. Anyone who's anyone is, <laughs> is in the oh RDSLP. Oh, my God. You're, you're still with the SRs? <laughs> Oh, my God, honey. The SRs are so two years ago. How provincial. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why don't you S my D and join the SDs, bitch? Ah, uh, so he's, uh, he's been in jail. He's done his bid. Uh, he gets a cool new look. He's always wearing a fedora now. Describing adult Stalin, I feel like, deserves a minute because he is a fucking dude. Like, you, he defines a generation. He's always got a fedora. He's got a scarf. This is where he looks like the, the guy on the front cover of the book. The hipster that every girl fell in love with. He this has, like, is, one pair of pants. Yeah, this is the era where Bushwick Stalin existed. Yeah, he's just out at bars named like the Broken Kettle. Yeah, and he and he slays. And why, why wouldn't you? But the thing to remember is that you know that's a very old photograph. It's not a lot. Doesn't have a lot of definition. Stalin did have very heavy uh, smallpox scarring, so it was sort of an Edward James almost situation. So maybe you still like that. Maybe you don't. Just you have to figure that into your equation. Oh right, the this the, is... fo the photograph had like a filter. Yeah, like um... yeah, the filter of it being an old timey <laughs> photograph with like a. Flash pan full yeah. of 
uh, igniting powders. <laughs> yeah. The filter is time. Yes. Uh, this is the part where we're going to do probably the best thing in this whole episode, which is read all of Stalin's nicknames. Fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, as you described, he is this called... This book was so hard to read. <laughs> I just want to point this out. It was it's actually a pretty quick read, and it makes a lot of sense, but one thing that slowed me up a lot is that everyone in Russia at this time has minimum 10 names, and then Stalin is like, I'm going to be the most... Of that of these people, so he has like. And it doesn't names. help that every uh, every Georgian ends their name ends in Vili. Oh, they're all, so they're all It's impossible to keep them separate. <laughs> I cannot tell you the name of anyone in this book. It's like everyone's <laughs> Vili. Everyone's I am reading Vili. off a document. It's Vili, 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 Vili. I hate that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Get a new name. Get a new way to put your name together. All right, so he's called the pockmarked because he <laughs> he's got the he has he's got those Edward Chase almost marks. He is Soso. His poet version is Soselo. How would you like to have the nickname Mediocre? <laughs> how so how, how is he? How how's that you guys really? So-so. It is our child, Joseph. Eh. <laughs> uh, the pockmarked one, slightly Ouch. different. The loper, because he has uh, also a limp. Yeah. Uh, the staggerer. Also uh, limp. Uh, the Caucasian, because he eventually moves to Russia, and then they're like, who's this fucking He's guy? He's a pretty fly for a white guy. It's because he goes to um, uh, to Def Jam comedy nights you know one what? night. <laughs> it's, not, it's surprising they didn't game him. You know what's the, the uh, most common uh, slur for Caucasians in Russia now? What's up? I don't. Black asses. <laughs> yep. So people from like Georgia, uh, Dagestan, and Czechia and stuff, <laughs> they get called black asses. Yeah. That is so confusing. It really does show you like the the will towards racism no matter what. It's like, <laughs> how are we supposed to distinguish? We're all incredibly pale. We're the most pale people on earth. Look yes, at his ass. But your ass is black. <laughs> I, I know you got ass. a black ass in those pants. <laughs> I know it. In Georgia with that black ass. <laughs> Uh, I know you sit in dirt. Okay, anyway, there's a lot more of these. David, don't know what's up with that. The priest, Koba, which means bear. Uh, and then he mixes them a lot. Like one, he's like Koba Kato, which is the name of his first wife. He's the priest, Father Koba. Like people knew he was a priest because he went to the seminary. Yeah. And so he's like, he would go around doing you know, underground shit, and they'd just be like, who's that roaming priest? One of the things that I'm sure just made sense at the time that was completely alien to me is that when he was writing letters, he would use a pen name, and as an affectionate thing to do to his first wife, Kato, he would sign his name Koba Kato. Yeah. So, like, there was this weird thing where if you were, like, in love with your wife, you would be like, uh, my name is Stephanie now, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then he, like, later on, after she died, he, like, was dating some other woman and was like, I like you so much. I'm not Kato anymore. Name change. We're, now Kato I'm you. Over. And it was, or Stefan, rather. Friendship with name Kato was... has ended. <laughs> well, it's just now Stahl a... is my only friend. It's such a weird reverse of the patriarchal, like, you take my name thing. Like, <laughs> now I'm Megan. Because I'm your boyfriend. <laughs> I guess, yeah, Stalin didn't care about gender roles. And, uh,. I'm here for it. I am here for it. <laughs> Except in all the ways he very much did care about Jennifer. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Um, uh, my favorite one, the milkman. Did I say that yet? The milkman, milk he delivers. Because he always delivers. Oh. He always delivers. He's was, there in the morning. He was like Any father of illegitimate children, probably. Yeah, also so many children. <laughs> that would actually kind of fit, yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's like another 400 of these. But uh, eventually, th this part was interesting towards the end of the book when he starts calling himself Stalin. Uh, it's because he publishes this very uh, uh, influential essay 
around the time of the 1917 revolution or like up towards there. And in that, because he was just switching his name every time, that time he was Stalin, and then that one took off. So he's like, yep, I'm Stalin. That's me forever now. Name yourself by your first hit. Oh, he's like a little Nas X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy used to be a, like an Instagram. He was influence. the fat he Jew. Was, he was before. like a fat Jew type guy. Yeah. And then when that <laughs> fucking song took off, he changed. He scrubbed everything, and now he's oh, I'm little Nas X. I've been I this have forever. always been little Nas X. He's the Jerry Adams of rap. Yeah, I've always said that. Uh, yeah. So my point is, uh, my man had a lot of names, and he's going town to town trying to organize for the party. Uh, he eventually, so he doesn't like have a house. In this time period, he's just showing up at whoever's like supportive of him because he's a very charming man. Oh, he's and a he'll stay with their kid. family. He's a Johnny Appleseed of revolution. He's a crust punk during this time. He is just a crusty punk, but who owns a fedora. He's living on my couch. <laughs> uh, my so he's like a third-way ska guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he'll show up at your house if you've been supportive and then he'll have sex with your daughter absolutely and, and your maid and, and your maybe ma- your mom every uh, every woman there I fucked your mom him. for you no <laughs> <laughs> so stalin was you do dishes he he, he would he did not leave a a a, a wife unfucked if he met them it's <laughs> astounding well, f- or or a daughter or any ancillary woman it kind of makes sense that he does have, like, the Bushwick guy image because he is, like... This... He's that guy. He hits it and quits it on the fucking uh, Tinder. And he's both, like, sensitive and writing poetry. And, yeah, like... exactly. And then just being like, bye-bye. He isn't, like, Bush. a total douche. He is, like, a hybrid guy where he is clearly, like, <laughs> like capitalizing doing on something. this mystique to fuck all <laughs> these women. A, there's a rumor that he was Nadia's dad because he did have a thing... With her mom, but it yes. was like, yeah. my didn't work out precisely. <laughs> yes, but, he <laughs> did though have a, an affair with the mother of his second wife, <laughs> which yeah. uh, boy said, so, yeah, uh, she eventually kills herself. Although I don't think yes. that happens in this book, but yeah, um, no, that's later. Sad. Pour one out for Nadia, uh, but he'll fuck everyone in your family. And then his <laughs> attitude about it at the same time is the best part because he just he doesn't apologize. Like you'll go up to him and be like, did you? Did you fuck my daughter? And he'll be like, I'm very busy right now. I can't talk about that. I actually have to go stay at another house until tomorrow where I'll be back fucking your daughter. <laughs> and so at this time, he meets his wife, Kato, and she is the daughter of one of his like closest uh, pals uh, when he's in Tiflis. And... Uh, she is like a very sensitive girl who like takes to him and they very slowly build up this, um, romance over time. And when he's thrown in jail, he like, will talk, he'll sweet talk the p- policeman into letting her in every night or he'll like crawl Epstein out style. and go see her <laughs> jail just works totally differently at this time period of uh, the late 19th century. Well, another thing that'll become a little bit more prevalent as we get into this story is that you might read the story and go like jesus christ like how did this guy just bribe and talk himself out of every situation but to that point about how everything was so unorganized and like whoever was after him or onto him at any point was miles away in another town like he was actively just plundering so much money from these weird bank robberies and shit he would do and uh, paying off people who were just cogs in the machine and didn't give a shit that much so you could, if you had all that money on hand, probably just fucking buy your way out of jail, talk your way out of jail. You're talking to somebody who doesn't give them much of a shit to begin with. There's stories about him, like, when he was a kid in jail the first time, reading, um, like, uh, Marx 
like just reciting it to someone in the jail next to him. As he, you do. And then he hears the, the jailer stop or like he's walking and yeah. he's like, oh, shit. And the guy goes, no, keep going, because he's just like interested hey, in it. Hey, Fitzy, let me tell you how many strands of linen it takes to make a sweater. <laughs> Wait till you hear this. Dude, how could you tell anyone about, like, Capital and then enwrap them in story? No, it was, uh, it was the Communist Manifesto. Oh, right, yeah. That's much snappier. That is snappier. That's true. <laughs> I guess that, yeah, that would be crazy to try to read Capital. Um, but that, that's a great point, though, in that he was uh, – what he was actively doing along the lines of organizing workers and uh, organizing for the party, he was also, his main role was he was just like a mob boss. He would show up places, get to know the entire underground circuit of wherever he was living, and then he would conduct robberies and steal thousands and thousands of rubles and then send them away to either Lenin or whoever his made man is at the time. And he, to his credit, didn't keep much of it or party with it. Yeah, it was, it, it, but it was in, in, in function, it was a mob, it was a mafia operation. Like, that was what it was. Like, he had the same job as a capo, a high-level capo in, a, in, a, in like, the black hand in, a, in the same time in the United States. In like yeah. The five points, and, you know, the Lower East Side thing. Those guys, those early mob guys, same time period, uh, the Castello Marie's guys, you know the the mustache Pete's who got overthrown by Luciano. Uh, they're doing the exact same thing, but they're just doing it for the party. They're robbing banks. They're doing protection rackets. That's a uh, big part of that's it. That's a yeah. huge part of it. Like everybody's got to pay so for security. They're kidnapping people, uh, rich people. That's all under the purview of uh, of traditional mob uh, operations. Well, that's it, why he's such an interesting figure to me because he is sort of a fusion between what could just be like a tool he could just be an organized criminal but he also is this marxist crusader who believes yeah. in the cause so he's well that's the thing that he says is montefort says it's the thing that made stalin so unique is that he was a thug but he was also a classically trained and like very elevated and intelligent person and he was like, singing the whole like time the, like the, he, he <laughs> one of the kind of counter narratives he tries to push against is the trotskyist notion that stalin was a total mediocrity and like a thick-headed peasant and and he met, he argues i think pretty convincingly that that was trotsky's inherent uh uh, uh snobbery yeah. well snobbery like he was a huge fucking yeah. snob he looked down on anybody who he didn't feel like as educated as he was and he's kind of like his 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 evaluation of stalin is the one that is one out and this is saying no he was actually really like smart he was a good poet he was an actual theorist if it wasn't at like the level of lenin or whatever uh, and then he combined that, but he combined that with being just a fucking thug. Yeah, and he synthesized the two things into what that's was praxis, baby. Yeah, <laughs> was uniquely um, going to work in this specific time and place in regards to what he felt he needed to do in order to support Lenin. And so he both, you know, was a person who was oriented towards the cause, but then also very much like formed this thing called the outfit which yeah. was <laughs> the fucking expendables it was an action movie ragtag group of uh of you know crazy people who probably didn't have the the ideological thing that he had yeah he would he, he had to corral them and sort of explain to them why they were doing what they no, were doing. it was a gang leader that's why it, so harry turtledove does these really nerdy alternative history books and stories where he's like what if the allies what if the confederacy had won the war you know that kind of thing and i've read an embarrassing amount of it and he once wrote a story where the premise was what if there'd been a soviet revolution in the united states instead of in 1917 what if yeah. there'd been a bolshevik 
party that took power during World War One in the U.S. instead of in Russia. Oh, I can't imagine. And the person who ends up taking power is not like John Reed or Eugene Debs or Big Bill Haywood. It's Al Capone. Oh, cool! Because it's like that's in his. That was in Turtle Dove's mind the equivalent of Stalin. Sure, syphilis rules. A mob guy. Yeah. It kind of goes back to Jake your point earlier about how there's just a kind of inherent tension between Marxism and liberalism, where liberals have this attachment to sort of great man theory, or I guess great person theory, where history moves forward through the actions. Great of person life. theory, Anders. It's 2019. <laughs> yeah. Great they theory. Great they them theory. Um, and, you know, Marxism, the other end of that is like, no, it's you have to look at the material forces, individuals more or less relevant. And, yeah, neither one of those is is totally true, um, you know, that but there are material forces that shape uh, a persona and, and people's decisions uh, and things like that. Um, I don't forget any of this, but like when he takes power, that is a really interesting sort of phase because. He had um, kind of, in, in Lenin's view, screwed some stuff up in Georgia because there was a uh, he tried to annex Georgia when they wanted independence. And then um, he's already kind of on the rocks with with Lenin, but he uh, is is ordered to only work for 10 minutes a week, which he's like very incensed about. And he calls up Lenin's wife. Group Sky. This guy working for WeWork. <laughs> but he WeWork. <laughs> but he just freaks out WeWork. at Lenin's wife and and uh in Montefiore's words, outrages uh Lenin's bourgeois sentiments. I don't know if that's his projection. But uh he, he says, um, to sleep with Lenin does not mean you understand Marxist Leninism. Just because she used the same toilet as Leninism, and then he just like goes that's on right. and on. Stalin is canceled, yo. <laughs> he says that uh, he warns her if she doesn't obey, then the Central Committee will appoint someone else's Lenin's wife, and that like almost does him in. So it really does, close. and it's it's an amazing lack of discipline because yeah. the whole reason he was able to take power is because he was able to wait to the right moment and restrain himself. Not like Trotsky, who was just jacking, just nutting everywhere all the time uh he was he was kept his powder dry but here he was still that was still very much up in the air at that point it was not determined it was not in any way determined that he was going to be the guy who succeeded lenin because lenin but then he wrote that fucking letter like he was so close to it and he just lost composure to write this like letter that just led to like yeah i will fucking end your shit well that's what fucking care that's what's so interesting about this as a biography if you just want to look at it coldly and ahistorically is just like why, why is this person this way if you want to look at him through the lens of like a serial killer or something like that like the guy was so compartmentalized that he was able to become so sociopathic and just like kill in just such scientific like clean ways but the, the part of him that was all of his humanity was dumped into was the ideological stuff so he could kill 10 people in a row and then like just not keep his mouth shut about this fucking thing, you know? Right, and he also just openly disrespects women. Uh, found a fantastic tweet <laughs> earlier this week that is from May, but uh, if you... Oh, <clears throat> Stalin? Uh, no, it is, uh, it's uh, from a tanky teen who is uh, standing for Stalin, but now reading into him, 
and uh, it was submitted for a take of the decade. And it says, <laughs> I looked up at the age difference for Stalin and his wife. And <laughs> I gotta say, our king shouldn't have a 21-year gap. And now I really don't know how to feel. <laughs> uh, he's Keanu. Oh, he's canceled. <laughs> Sis, <laughs> that is the samovar of tea. Thank you, samovar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have a problem with uh, his second wife, you should see the 13-year-old he marries in exile. Oh, <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, boy. We'll get there. We're kind of all over the place. But um, we're at the part now where my man is doing made man crimes. He's doing He's La Cosa rapids. Nostra, baby. He's the final law of the West. And Mob the, candy. Uh, the book opens on this great scene. Uh, in 1907 where he's doing a robbery in Tiflis and it's his one last straw and this is where we kind of meet his his crew the the outfit uh it's him so so's 11 i'm not gonna have the names because again frankly i did not realize we were doing an episode on this when i was reading it but it's him it's like a few uh uh Femme fatales who all have like pistols and they're like leggings yeah (laughs) there are three young women that are part of his gang that (laughs) operate like as these hot young women that charm police and shit and then yeah. smuggle the money around in their like bras and, and their bustles and, shit, and such and like have dynamite in their cleavage and stuff yeah they're fucking rules they all rule he has a kick-ass team that of people who all deserve their own biographies but unfortunately they are all overshadowed by his right-hand man whose name is camo and camo. is just a psycho camo's a wild man camo <laughs> fucking rules he's got one blind eye leading into the tiflis bank heist because he was just fiddling with bombs and blue one of his eyeballs because <laughs> he's like the bomb guy on the he's, A team or he's whatever. He's the Joker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if this is the A team, he would be Howlin' Mad Murdoch. Right. 100%. And he is at the forefront of all operations Stalin does. So if you're going to be killed by Stalin, Stalin's not going to kill you. He has a bum arm. He's going to send this psychopath camo after you who's going to choke you in front of your family. Apparently, whenever whenever Stalin would get into a public argument with a fellow communist on a question of tactics or theory, camo would just say, let me slit his throat. Let me kill him for you. Let me you. kill him for so, you. So. I can't kill him. You want me to kill him? It's like, hey, I will kill him for you. My drive to kill, it strikes again. The book opens with them doing this bank heist, uh, uh, kind of botching it. It's uh, sort of a Super Mario Brothers style. <laughs> they literally just hurl bombs yeah. like you're trying to blow up Donkey Kong. They blow up. The, they have these grenades they call apples, and they're launching them at this cart that is drawn by... Uh, horses that's carrying all the money from the bank which is i mean you could just reimagine this you could rewrite this as some dumb david clooney or george clooney fucking bank heist thing where it's an armored car yeah it's a horse-drawn carriage they're not going for any of that subtlety where oh we're gonna sneak in and i'm gonna pretend to be a cop and i'm gonna get the key and no we'll just throw bombs and kill everyone around there. It's exactly how I play Metal Gear Solid, because I'm not good at all the sneaking. I'm like, you gave me grenades. I'm going to throw them at the horse. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're just going five-star GTA out of the bat. Just <laughs> fuck this. Because, again, help is not coming. It's hundreds of miles away. The grenades blow up like the horse's stomach yeah. that's leading the that's dragging the cart. The horse collapses. They go to try to get the money. The horse, like, freaks out, has an adrenaline rush, and comes back to life and starts dra- like running away drags all the with money the away. fucking money and then this hilarious shit happens where one of them is chasing the the money that's like getting away he rolls a bomb like he's doing Super Mario Kart yeah and then he just rips the guts out of the fucking horse but the best part to me was when they're like they're chasing the getaway banged up 
like money cart thing and a police officer running past them stops them and goes do you know where the bank robbers are they're like yeah they're back there (laughs) and the police officer goes thanks for the heads up and runs back into town not realizing he just talked to the bank robber the police officer kills himself the next day (laughs) oh i should have known it was the beautiful women (laughs) oh realizing how bad he got owned you got fucking old he logs off forever you got old courtesy of stalin (laughs) this is a great thing to frame this book around it was a good idea because it lead up all the way to how it was also a huge deal at the time it was like worldwide news it was a billion rubles or four u.s dollars (laughs) Uh, It ended up causing huge strife within the the Social Democratic Party. Right. Helped contribute to the final split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Yeah. Well, this is uh, the opening for the book because it's how Stalin gets in with Lenin is with all of this money. He's yeah, Lenin loves this shit. Len- the thing about Lenin is, he's, you know... He's like a gangster. He he's loves like, his books, He's like but... Kevin Spacey in uh, Baby Driver. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's nothing he likes better than that sweet, sweet cheese. Gotta let old Vladimir wet his beak. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta give me a taste. <laughs> Gonna need a little bit of that Vladimir cheese. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he he gets all this stuff. He's finally in with Lenin, and uh, now he can become officially part of the big meetings that happen. The Central Committee. In the CC. That's the real hardcore. If you were in the Central Committee at that point, you either ended up uh, getting killed by uh, Stalin or Stalin. That's basically <laughs> it. Yeah. There were a couple, like, house-trained boys that he broke, like like Molotov, but... Basically, everybody he was in the early... Uh, Maltop uh, was just his butler so, for yeah. life. Anybody who else was in that central committee, they got old. <laughs> yeah. I think Kolontai survived. Yes, she like did. She's the one. She's a boss. Oh, fun uh, anecdote from the book uh, showing off the differences between Stalin and Trotsky is Kolontai is fucking this young sailor man right. during the revolution. Right. <laughs> and this is uh, supposedly the last time they ever made small talk. Is to, they're like essentially watching it behind a curtain and Stalin's nudging Trotsky inside and be like, hey, you like this? This is pretty fun. And Trotsky's like, it's not fucking funny. And she is a beautiful woman that I respect. <laughs> and then they never spoke again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's the end of the. At the end of the day, Trotsky was absolutely a fucking nerd. He was a class. He was just the class fucking brown nosing, telling your teacher that they forgot the homework. Fucking grind ass Tracy Flick ass nerd. He's a nerd, and he's just right enough of the time that back then you had to be nice to him. And then eventually they're like, Stalin's <laughs> like, hey, who do you got? Who do you want to hang around with? You want to hang around with some fucking dork who's going to correct your pronunciations of things and listen to classical music? Or me, party dude, Stalin, <laughs> hang out, I'll drink some Georgian wine, watch f- fucking cowboy movies. What sounds more fun? And yeah. people are like, hell yeah. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Sign me up. I'll recite poetry, which is rap at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, Trotsky's like, excuse me, we need to go through the minutes again. <laughs> Let's get our grammar correct. The first rule of our new country, no nerds. <laughs> there is a pair uh, uh, in uh, the Trotsky, in uh, the uh, Isaac Berliner Trotsky biography I read, which is very good, highly recommended. Uh, there was apparently a moment after the Soviet Union had been established where Trotsky was, uh, you know, driving hard his staff and all the other 
guys. And anybody who fucked up or or didn't complete an assignment just got berated. And apparently he was just yelling at fucking Molotov one day, and Molotov just goes, "But comrade Trotsky, not everyone can be a genius." <laughs> 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 Fuck off. <laughs> Such a fun, even to be a historical nerd is really just like a terrible title to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, ba- back to this robbery, though, this is especially big because, and this is a, a huge part of understanding the development of the uh, SDs. They had a rule because this happened so much that they were done doing robberies <laughs> and everyone voted and it was before this big one with the grenades. And that's kind of what puts uh, Lenin on the outs because he suddenly shows up with a lot of money all of a sudden. Yeah. And they all know where he got it mm-hmm. from the fucking robbery they're reading about in Britain <laughs> half a world away. Yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, they just like. They just mag-dumped a bunch of cartoon bombs into a public place. Just shredded the a fuck out of, of 40 people. A ton of people died, people. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like two blocks away from where his wife and kid lived. Yeah. And he, like, didn't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, so um, funny. Yeah, I think this is as good a time as any to get into kind of his uh, personal romantic life. Ooh, baby. So as we were saying... He was a player. He He's being a real playboy the whole time, but uh, the people who get close to him do not have a great time of it because it turns out once you let this... Uh, cunning mob boss into your life he actually doesn't pay much attention to you his first wife kato who apparently he really loved bears him a child and he takes her to baku on this organizing mission which is this industry town run by the rothschilds and it, it was basically barter town it baku just looks like so mordor funny. yeah it's just on fire there's like <laughs> temples and shit still from yeah, it's the set of eraser head <laughs> <laughs> there's temples where there's just oil fires and the people worship the oil fires yeah which is just old-timey Game of Thrones shit, and yet here comes industry to just fast-forward everything a million years at a time. And, like, the people that that strike it rich on this oil are able to, to amass so much wealth that they are building these, like, homes, these, like, mansions are all competing with each other where they're just like, one guy's house is just in the shape of a deck of cards where the <laughs> letters on the cards spell out his name and shit. One guy's fucking mansion, the front door is just a dragon's mouth that you walk through. This fucking kicks ass. But it's also like a Black Magic the Gathering card where it's... Yeah. It's swamps. It's, it's evil. It's for oh, sure no, swamps. It's deeply decadent and, and vile. Yeah. It's a culture, an absolute nadir of, of anything, civilized. And it's before they really understood that, like... I mean, they did have the concept of the black town and the white town, which is the black town being where the oil is, I think, and the white town where you, maybe you're still separate of it, but uh-huh. they weren't separate enough from the toxic thing they were mining. So <laughs> The entire town was above a glue factory, as Jake's apartment is above a glue factory. Everyone got uh, extra old-timey diseases, and even being there for a few months, his wife gets so sick that they try to transport her back to uh, Tiflis, where she's from, and she immediately, like, fucking explodes of mega cancer. She gets old. She is fucking she old. She is fucking old. By the revolution. Yeah, sorry, lady. We had to take you to Baku. And so she has a child with him, and she, it's like... Yakov. Yakov, uh, who is a, a few years old, and Stalin essentially looks at eyes and is like... They have a good one. Yeah, good luck. I'm trying Smell to Smell you later. I'm going to go do some revolution. I need to go write poetry about Peace. being emo now. But there is a famous <laughs> incident where at the, at, the, at the funeral of his beloved Kato, he said, apparently, this is 
this is the last tenderness of my stony heart is is like left or something. It's like he basically said, "I'm going to be the bad guy from now on. I will be this, bad now. Yeah, I am bad man now. I and don't then, like humans. They are bad for me." This is where, in the way that yeah, this, yeah, the biography yeah. is written, there is like an act turn. This is where you go into, I guess you would describe maybe Act Two, or because it's written in five parts, maybe literally yeah. Act Three or whatever. But I believe he says, "It says with with her dies my last warm feelings for humanity." Very deliberately says. presented as being arguably when. Now he that's just, some Lex Luthor <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. like, he's like Mr. Freeze watching yeah, his wife. Yeah, die. exactly. It's like this is like Thanos level shit. <laughs> yeah, like the self consciousness of this. Yeah, and it's like I maybe think the writer here is taking some artistic license, but you know, also entirely possible. That I that will is. say that I have seen that quote in many many accounts. That is apparently an accepted quote. Yeah, yeah. people just uh, talked like. Now that. the question people have about is whether he was being full of shit and just using it as an excuse. Like, oh no, I guess I have to be a piece of shit now. I have sure. to keep doing crime. When reality is like, yes, I get to keep doing crime. <laughs> and the support for that is that there's another quote in the book where, well, he's in one of his uh, uh, exiles in Siberia. He says, "The revolu- we have to stay an underground organization until the revolution, which is good because otherwise we'd have to be normal people. <laughs> <laughs> like, he admits that like, I'm not built for a civilian life. <laughs> well, I mean, Which is how you, he ends up being like in charge of this like massive state, but the, <laughs> the organs of the state are like a fucking mob boss. Oh, one final See? detail on the funeral before we move on is he says this emotional quote, and then the cops come and he has to hop a fence and get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he too- was like one of the Duke boys. <laughs> yeah. He was always just ahead of Boss Hog and his guys. <laughs> so sell house! <laughs> he has to ditch. Is it jump the cart over the canyon or whatever? <laughs> yeah, it was very funny that he had to ditch. Just a good old his... boy. That's wait a minute. Is it uh, Dukes of Hazard? That's a Georgia, right? That is a Georgia. Holy shit! Boom. Holy oh my shit. god! It's Kismet. Yeah, we figured we connected the universes yes. of Dukes of Hazards and Al Bundy. Yep. In this, this essay, I will prove. Uh, this would be my thesis statement: is the same Georgia. But yeah, um, I, well, just real quick, one more thing about the the. The biographical nature of the way the story is told and this moment of him supposedly losing his innocence, it I think maybe it does kind of speak to him being a stunted person in that he, you know, watched his wife die, maybe did lose the last of his innocence, and then decided, well, now, yeah, I don't, I can just lean full force into being He this turned weird. to his friend and said, I think I'm going to become the Joker. Yeah, for real. <laughs> it is like a parallel with the third act of like a human male's life in a lot of ways where he's entering like divorced guy era, I think, in his life. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, he signs all of his essays with his dead wife's name. He's going and doing poetry or name. I think, is this when he becomes a weatherman? I don't know. He's still out doing <laughs> bachelor shit. Right, but then he becomes sort of like, uh, he he takes a last tango in Paris style approach to his grief uh, by just having tons of sex. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he is clearly mourning, but also still a sociopathic, like, yeah. horny guy. Yeah. The beast needs to feed. Dog got to eat. <laughs> Which I would argue he's ahead of his time. <laughs> you can totally be that. You the know? mourning can make you horny. <laughs> and so... You know, he get he dives into his work. He becomes very powerful in the organization. He becomes part of the CC. Um, and this is where we see 
the, the only the only moment that makes me question whether his wife's dying is like impactful and his change into a cold bastard is he has like six of those moments in this book yeah <laughs> every time he goes to jail he's like and then after this jail i became post jail stalin yeah i mean that's why it's hard to really <laughs> suss out whether it's the narrative or whether he literally and only then, felt it that hard and then with you have the, the one amazing wife. reality that tr- that stalin because of the absolute control he was able to exercise over that country once he took power he had what 25 years to try to literally edit the history of his life like he was he had able to delete all of his he tweets. was able to go in there and like <laughs> take like like there's a bunch of stories in the in the footnotes of this about yeah. people having uh documents and photographs and uh and diaries that are just confiscated by by the secret police during the terror so you, you literally got to edit like the historical record of his youth yeah, that's why this story is so interesting because the way it's sourced is it's told in spite of that. Yeah. So there, this is also only you know whatever the fuck they were able to cite. And apparently, the, a lot of it is that they were able to get memoirs because a lot of people who knew Stalin when he was you know the guy, they wrote memoirs about their relationships with him that they never released uh, because you know the right. boss didn't want them to be it was a bad time to release yeah and so but they've been found since save to draft they've been found subsequently in like records so these yeah. are the first time that they're being used according to him yeah so that's what we're that's what we're getting here is like the details like the because you know one of the reasons he went down because trotsky says that oh during the 1905 revolution he was pushing papers somewhere you know and it's like no he was funding a fucking newspaper by fucking kidnapping and brigandage uh, Wanted and being, murder. being a literal highwayman yeah, being a uh, pirate sometimes yeah basically yeah literally piracy he fucking yeah. he, he hijacks two at least two boats yeah. two, two, two tanker ships yeah um yeah. the other big character defining moment that uh montefiore uh obsesses on is when he is getting further involved in the cc and uh he's moving up the ranks he has more of a relationship uh, doing police espionage because mm. the Okrana, which is the Tsarist police at the time, who are like, you know, the FBI of the fucking emperor or yeah. whatever, a very basic form of anti-intelligence are just all over his organization. So his main job, and the reason he's valuable to Lenin, is he can sniff out a rat. And so he uh, develops a super paranoid personality that informs every decision he makes for the rest of his life. I mean, there's a whole question about the degree to which there would have had to have been violence directed against the apparatus of the party after the collectivization of agriculture. I mean, the idea being that, like, Stalin made the choice that Trotsky wasn't willing to make, right, to make the omelet of an industrial competitive Soviet Union by breaking the eggs of the peasantry, right? Specifically which, from places he who slighted him exactly. thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and and so from the uh, town of that guy Greg who pissed <laughs> me off thirteen years ago. <laughs> so Stalin's willing to make that deal, but so to have the state carry out this mass expropriation of surplus uh, uh, agricultural product to create these, you know, uh, industrial hell cities that can make the gap make up the gap difference between russia and the west right uh you're going to engender a lot of hostility to the state carrying this out and the purges could be read they are of course like 
part of his paranoia. But they could also be read as a strategy of diffusing uh, 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 resentment, popular resentment of the state as, as itself. Because the first round of some of the first terror rounds were people who were blamed for the initial um, deaths in Ukraine. There's like this famous uh, 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 essay that pub- Stalin published in the in the state organs called uh, "Dizzy with Success," where he says, "Oh, people went a little too far in Ukraine," and he basically sells out the people who had carried out his orders there. I have a list of some of these people, and so like you could read the terror as basically the system self-sacrificing over the like the of the cr- the necessary crime right you know of 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 uh, agricultural uh, industrialization the part is that, that makes it look so is bad that we're sacrificing like the people who carried that out on the altar having carried it out sure Good. do you think though that the new economic program could have been continued in a way that would uh, be sustainable and maybe go to socialism or that they just needed the uh, some more big big structural change see here's the thing is that I feel like big is that the, po- the my real belief about the Soviet Union is that they were in a Kobayashi Maru as soon as the revolutionary wave crested after 1918 without any of the other big countries going left I feel like they were in a Kobayashi Maru where they were not going to be able to find a good answer to anything because the entire theory of skipping all the steps and skipping the first stage and skipping the bourgeois revolution in, in Russia was Lenin's idea, which he got from Trotsky, about permanent revolution and about the creation of being the spark that lights a world revolution that then says, well, we don't have to develop capitalism because we can humanely develop our economy with the aid of all these advanced Western countries that are going to go revolutionary as soon as we do. And that was the premise by which they carried out the revolution. And then, and it, it looked for a minute like it was going to happen. Once the Kiel garrisons uh, go into mutiny in in, uh, in Germany and stuff, and then that spreads to the fucking, the Inverness, and, and even the, there's, there's, you know, there's widespread rebellion in, in Hungary, there's a Soviet, and and there's, there's a Soviet in Munich, and there's, you know, risings in Berlin. It looks like it's going to happen. And then it doesn't. The, the wave crests, partially because, as I said, these more advanced societies had more advanced middle classes that had co-opted a lot of the uh, working class energy and directed it against revolution, like is what happened in Germany. Um, and that left the Soviets with an unanswerable question. We are now the pariah state of the world, the pariah dog. Everyone wants to end us. They have every incentive to destroy us because we cannot spread as a, as a concept. As we are an existential threat to their order. So what do we do? We can either negotiate terms of surrender to capital, which I think going keeping the NEP would have been eventually. It would have there would have been a slow sort of you know uh, uh, negotiation of surrender to capital, which would have left the actual Soviets maybe in a, a Bolsheviks maybe in a, in a decent position, like they they might have been able to negotiate you know good severances or or positions in the new government totally. or whatever. But I feel like. That would have been the inevitable, inevitable result of, of, of supercharging capitalism uh, in that incredibly uh, you know, pe- peasant society. The other option was to try to compete directly as, a world, as, a, as an economic power to prevent being eventually overcome by capital, and that meant supercharging industry. And the only way you do that historically is by wringing it out of the labor of the peasants. 
and then that was the choice that basically they were left with unless they wanted to surrender the concept of a communist uh, uh, Soviet Union. Do you think that uh, Stalin's ideological origins is kind of a Georgian nationalist Marxist played into that decision at all? Do you think it was in his DNA at all to be a little bit of a like a nation builder? He loved the homies. <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing is, is that he started off as a Georgian nationalist, but then his big conflict with Lenin and Trotsky was over his harsh suppression of Georgian nationalism. Right. Yeah. Like, he, what like, would his he Facebook kind of showed that say? it didn't what really it matter. He didn't care. Yeah. Fair. Fair. At the end of the day, he didn't really care about the Georgian shit. Like as yeah. soon as his position of power moved from the periphery to the metropole, he was like. Yeah, fuck him. Okay, yeah. I guess I was imagining it as him having just switched out. Oh, now I'm a Russian nationalist or whatever. But yeah, you're yeah, a fucking you're right. Russian nationalist. Switched ideologically. Anders, what would the Facebook quiz say? <laughs> yeah, would it be Georgian nationalist, Marxist, Leninist? Yeah. Oh, yeah, if that was a Facebook quiz. We can only wonder. <laughs> but, like, the reason Stalin was the guy who ended up being in the position to pull the trigger on what needed to be done if you're going to assume the existence of a Soviet Union that was going to be viable... He had to be a mob guy because nobody else is going to have the stomach to do it. Right. And he loved being one. Yeah. <laughs> nobody <laughs> else is going to have the stomach for that. Because, like, Trotskyism, yeah. the defining nat- nature of Trotskyism was it was Trotskyism, the obsession, the, ob- the obsession with internationalism and Trotskyism is born out of the failure of that revolution to happen. And then the f- refusal to accept the material reality of turning Russia into an advanced country. They couldn't, because like the thing that was going to fix that is, well, you just hook up with these advanced societies that now are cop- communist, and they're going to help us out, and then we don't have to do the horror, the bad, awful thing that all the other, all the capitalist countries did to get there. It right. just took over a longer time, and most of it was done in colonial uh, countries, so they, it didn't even feel as much like violence because... The people it was like, happening to somebody city, else. It's happening to somebody else. It's yeah, like, it's it's like written out of their history. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like, and then he was the one who was willing to fucking do it. Right, it's a mob guy. But Trotsky, Everyone, Trotsky was like Trotsky. Trotsky was always saying, "Well, hold on a minute. We'll, we'll basically kick the can down the road and argue about it until the world revolution happens and saves us from this conversation." Right. But Stalin but was the guy in- who was saying, "The world revolution is not walking through that door." <laughs> we got to deal with this situation as it exists. All right, Andrew, what about we, we'll do more counterfactuals okay. in the next episode. Let sure, me wrap sure, this sure. one up. Okay, okay, okay. So we got. Let's just cover two more things, and that'll pretty much cover the book because we are very post-revolution here. Um, so the the paranoia from looking out for spies is another uh, theory of the author, and then the last big transformative moment he has. So he has all these. Uh, uh, young girlfriends the whole time. As oh, he gets yeah. older, he develops his taste, which is uh, I like a woman who is uh, either very dumb or a child, <laughs> because then I can kind of dunk on her all day. Yeah. And so he gets all these girlfriends who are like sixteen or seventeen, and then uh, finally he's sent to jail for like the five hundredth time. And every time, every other time he's gone to jail, they'll send him to essentially like a camp like a sleepaway camp where you go there and then you literally get like a fake ID like you're in college and you yeah. put on a mustache and you're like, I am actually Victor. Yeah. Uh, all you had to do, the only question was how long it took you to either raise the money in exile or to have the money wired to you because it costs like 75 rubles. If you had 75 rubles, 
you could escape whenever you wanted. And he was yeah. great at getting money out of people. This guy had so many GoFundMes. There's like two things about that. There's like always a weird RA, just like local cop, who's just like, my job is just, just to police the weird people that live here. They called that one guy the cock because he was like a... <laughs> yes. The river cock. Yeah, the, the river, river cock. cock yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was just a ridiculous, like, kind of uh, goofy villain character to right. the Right, and someone would campers. be in jail and would just like get in physical fights yeah. with the policemen who were in charge of him and that was just a thing you could do there's also this quote i can't remember who it was pulled from the, in the the book but uh, about this situation which is that like if someone didn't leave exile within a few months they just didn't want to they didn't want to because yeah, right. you could walk yes. out yeah it was... even when they put him in siberia he eventually walked out <laughs> <laughs> yeah trotsky rode a reindeer <laughs> yeah that's the thing like that fucking nerd was able to escape from jail yeah in the that's way possible yeah. <laughs> like santa claus <laughs> it's like santa claus for books uh so eventually eventually uh they, the state realizes who this guy is and that he's gotten away from them ten times. So he's like, okay, the only way we can get rid of Soso is if we send him to the North Pole. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they send him up to the corner of the Arctic Circle. And uh, this is where uh, Montefiore argues he is changed for the last time before the revolution and uh, becomes affected by the elements because it is so cold there that it w- drenches into your soul. It's at this point he develops his uh, spicy take of the book 13 year old wife who bears him two children <laughs> her name is Lydia Peregrina. Uh let me see if I can get the name of the town I don't know I'll, I don't fucking remember the name of it it's like or something it's one of those things where it's like it is a name too cold to say okay three act uh, gritty superhero story right the end of the first act is his wife dying and him losing his humanity end of second act is him becoming pedophile Santa Claus (laughs) 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 preparing himself entirely for what he's about to do next but this this is my favorite part of the entire story because he's already this hardened mob man who is just being crushed by the cold and he's in uh, the Arctic Circle in a town with like 15 people because nobody wants to live there no it's awful there's the Tungus indigenous tribesmen and they're the only one there uh, and uh, he shows up along with like two other criminals because that's just where the state is sending these people because it's too far away to come home and uh uh he just immediately goes in and shacks up with the 13 year old (laughs) (laughs) so the family hates him and he just comes at home every night from like killing reindeer for meat and then just disappears with the daughter and then they have to like eat with him at dinner and it's it's wildly uncomfortable, and he's there for two years. This is something. why I'm he's saying, a bad boy. <laughs> this is why I think he has divorced guy energy because the shit that he's doing early in his life is eccentric and kind of forgiving of a young wacko artist. But the older you get, and you keep doing a lot of this shit, and also like suspiciously just dating women that are the same age. He's as in your his thirties at this point. Yeah. This is getting to the point where it's like, all right guy needs to go to therapy or like quit his hobby or whatever his uh analogous you know modern character would be a much more sad person i think he's marxist in the streets libertarian in the sheets <laughs> and that's where he's getting these young hot girls oh fair i see but that but see this is the beauty of being the lumpen proletarian that he was like that's the thing about stalin is that he never really was a working class guy 
You know, he worked for like a minute in his with his dad's shoe company when his dad was like, "Come and be the cobbler." Yeah, you but need he, shoe. He was he was he was lumpen proletarian. Like that was his deal. He was like outside of the working class, just an unorganized lump of criminal shiftlessness. He didn't have the discipline and 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 uh, and like social order drilled into him by labor because that's the thing in 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 Marx labor is the disciplinary tool that is is necessary cuz you got to turn people into like human beings basically right. you have to have them be civilized in the ways of like a society like to respect other people and like the others experience and like to to Marx working in 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 the, becoming a being a member of the working class gives you that experience if you're outside of it if you're outside of you know the cash relationships and you're making money you know in prostitution or criminality like this, that just it's it's a pathology because you know, there's no discipline involved. You're not learning how to be a person amongst other people. You 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 assume everything as a transaction, and and that has to be uh, disciplined out of you by actually working. And Stalin never did. No, although he is permanently affected by uh, just being in this Arctic hell where. People will go out to hunt, as people do uh, in this region, as it's the only way to get food. There's no civilization. Jesus. Um, and then one or two of the members won't come back because they wandered into the wrong part of the snowdrift, and everyone is just fine with it. <laughs> and he carries that kind of mentality on for the rest of his life. Uh, so eventually he gets his papers and finally gets out of there. And when the government completely collapses during World War One, and there's just no effort to keep anyone yeah. in exile anymore, he's allowed to just leave. Yeah, that's the thing that people don't really have absorbed, especially people who want to translate, you know, uh, Bolshevik theories of power into uh, modern America. Is that like after World War One started and this medieval ass society tried to fight? a fucking modern technical war the whole thing basically fell apart completely almost immediately like you like the roads and, and railroads were just choked with deserting soldiers taking their entire kits and firearms and going back home like that was what defined the whole thing like people just walking away from their employments in the state and and people in in the cities turning into just absolute riots of of labor disruption and, and strikes like everything, ba the gears basically fell off. Yeah, it was not a functioning society basically by the, by the time that the the February Revolution happened. If you're organized, you can make any kind of government you want from yeah. fucking this. You yeah, know? <laughs> there is no. No, that order. is really true. Like like the Soviets won out for for largely the reason that they were the most disciplined and organized party existing at that moment. Everyone else was to some degree uh, either committed to a state that was on life support uh like diffuse in their in their motives uh or or just hopelessly paralyzed by indecision like the mensheviks and the srs uh like even even like at that moment what looked most likely was there was going to be a, mil a right-wing coup which would have succeeded and honestly if the bolsheviks hadn't been there would have happened eventually but even on the right like, who is going to be in charge of it? That was never settled. They never had a unified... They had no plan. They had no plan. There was no counter-revolutionary, counter like, reactionary response coordinated um, at the high levels of, you know, the aristocracy and the military. It was and, violent Mario Party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the Kornilov, the Kornilov coup that, like, really gave this, the Soviets, or the Bolsheviks, like, the credibility leading into uh, 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 October... Um, 
nobody to this day really knows if that was coordinated or not, or if it was just a mistaken, like one weird guy, uh, like misinterpreting uh, fucking telegrams. Like nobody knows if it even really happened. So there was no real organized counter-revolutionary uh, tide, and that's why, with everybody else being either paralyzed or unorganized, the Bolsheviks just. To use a sports metaphor, they wanted it more. They wanted it. You got to show up and get it. At the end of the day, it's all about the off season, and yep. that's what it's all about. And and but the, the reason everyone else was so weak and divided is because there was no organized middle class that had created like a real a real buffer zone of yeah. like people who to fill these positions. It was all skeleton crews, and so it was just so brittle and easy to knock over. As opposed to in Western Europe, where you know. Uh, by that point, the Industrial Revolution had been going on for almost 100 years. It had developed these very uh, rich networks of, of sort of middle-class diffusion of cultural values and also co-optation materially of members of the working class, which never happened in Russia. You could work at BuzzFeed in Germany at the time. Basically, yes. Like, that was a job. <laughs> like, coffeehouse fucking grad student was a job in Germany. It was not really a job in the Soviet Union. Um, uh, so I'm just going to wrap this up real quick. But uh, So essentially he gets back and all of the 1917 revolution stuff you've heard about a thousand times happens. Uh, but what the book emphasizes is that Stalin as a guy was personally pretty much unknown on a major level for the Bolshevik party. Like people knew Trotsky because he was a rock oh, yeah. star nerd. Oh, no. Yeah, he was the right. king pimp. People knew Lenin because he had that great shiny head. He was the man. Yeah, uh, and uh, but Stalin's main asset was as Lenin's second-in-command who could disappear him at a moment's notice when uh, he launched a failed coup and uh, everyone was trying to kill him. He, like, put a, a hat in a, and shaved his beard and was like, your name is Sam now, and then that <laughs> he gave him those skills, and uh, that carried on for the rest of his career. It makes sense as to why that his legacy is so confusing, because if you're a famous spy, you're doing it wrong. Yes, yes. So, yeah, of course, he got propped right up after. Trotsky was the like, Austin Powers of yeah. the revolution. <laughs> but that's, and then he, won, he like, it boils, one of the big things it boils down to is that uh, Lenin, Stalin beat Trotsky because he could lay in the cut, and Trotsky couldn't. Trotsky was Mr. Plumage. He was the war commissar. He was the guy who won the Civil War. He was the guy people were worried about carrying out a Bonapartist coup because he had his boast of power in the military. Uh, uh, Stalin, because he was he had a position in the party apparatus and not in like you know the ap- actual military, he looked he looked much less threatening. And of course, he didn't have a public profile. Meanwhile, the actual job he had as general secretary was to stock the political appointments at every level of the party, like in, in the labor unions and in the party apparatus, to like stock the actual staff. Like that was he was in charge of HR basically, which meant that when it was time to start voting, like large chunks of these committees were controlled by people that he had handpicked for the job. Right, a made man through and through. Yes, <laughs> the Irishman. The Irishman, directed the by Mar- Martino Scorsese. <laughs> Check it out. Anyway, that's Young Stalin. Um, young. Uh, young Stalin. Y U N G. Oh, the Young Stalin. The for hot sure. man you know today. He's a rapper. Uh, if you're interested in the in the it's story, right. check out the book because there are a million details we didn't get to, but it is fucking fantastic. So Before we wrap up, I just want to rattle through a few details that I had made notes of in my head. Oh, yeah, there are a few good ones. Just here. details, but as I was reading this book, I was just like, this is the funniest shit ever. This should be a movie. It should be a dumb fucking action comedy. Uh, detail number one. In Baku, that town where all the oil came from, where everything's on fire and shit, one of the uh, one of the the oil tycoons who built a 
competitive house to try to have like a big mansion and big dick the other guys uh tried to cover his mansion in gold and they had to talk <laughs> him out of it and get him to replace it with gold plating because the heat from the oil fires would melt his house <laughs> i want awesome. the chocolate house <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i can't build you a candy house It'll <laughs> melt the sun will melt the candy <laughs> not if it never rains <laughs> <laughs> and uh another one was it when uh when Stalin was on the come uh, come up and when he was first meeting with Lenin and becoming this uh, arm of Lenin's in the underground or whatever, he was traveling very clandestinely on like trains and planes and things like that. And he took a boat at one point and the boat was shipwrecked, but not before a fight broke out on it. And just as another note boat was full of clowns so he was on a clown boat did i mention oh, the boat yeah. was full of clowns it was full of clowns anders was there and an entire <laughs> fight broke out and the guy writing in the footnotes the author of this book just kind of goes look i can't really in good faith tell you that he fought with the clowns you know but like, we can just some, imagine it have fun have fun yeah. with history tells us <laughs> we can make some assumptions he probably know? fought a clown uh, oh, you know what man. i bet he did you know what I bet he did? It was like, I'll, I'll let you live if you make me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One by one, they, they had to try and them. get a chuckle out of him or they died. <laughs> I don't know. Just weird shit like that. Read the fuck out of this book. It's so funny. Check and out books. All right. And that's our Young Stalin episode. Uh, do we want to plug anything, Matt? Is there anything you'd like to share with our if audience? If anyone's in the UK, we still got tickets to our shows in London and Liverpool right before... The general election, baby. Jess is going to do it. It's going to be proper mental. It's going to happen, mate. It's labor, mate. It's going to win it. It's going to be smashing. Phone labor. The absolute boy. The absolute boy is going to do it. No, I can't. I'm prepared for my brain to be destroyed the next day. Like, just atomic weapon level leveling of my cerebral cortex. Either out of glee or just savage nihilistic despair either way though my brain will be a ravaged wasteland that's a good plug look for matt's brain and scrape it off the <laughs> yeah it, it will be just a pile of gunk you have six days before matt is dead yeah <laughs> that, uh, that looks like a scotch egg yes oh it's matt's brain it's a bloody curry it's a big curry <laughs> uh i'm just gonna plug my twitter on this one Appetack jokes i'll put all my stuff on there anders you got anything uh, at Anders Lee here on Twitter, and if you are in New York this Saturday and you like stuff like the history of the 20th century and uh, fascism, communism, and eugenics, I'm doing a show about the autistic spectrum. I do love a lot of people don't you know. Well, like learning about eugenics. You, you like can, the learning. I was about told those if I liked eugenics, I would like this show. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to round Finally. them up. Finally, something so that can speaks be to me um, in the marketplace. Tell me about the extra bone. <laughs> okay, wait. I'm doing a show about the autistic spectrum and the history of it, which a lot of people don't realize has a lot to do with fascism and eugenics, uh, but it's a lot of fun. It's going to be Saturday at 8.10 at the Crane Theater in the Village. Edwin Black, War on the Week. Go see the, go see the show. It's a good show. Go see Anders' fascist show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this fascist one-man clown show. Um, no, go see Dummy. It's good. Um... <laughs> I am going to be in the Southwest all next week doing shows around Phoenix, Tucson, um, Bisbee, Arizona, if you're out there. You're going to have some fucking topaz? I'm going to do some DMT, I think. That's hopefully. Probably also buy a bunch of uh, turquoise. Yeah, get that turquoise shit. (laughs) Triple hard on it. 
Get a, get a turquoise uh, fucking uh, bolo tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to come back a different person, a Excellent. southwestern You're going to be a Taos motherfucker. <laughs> Starting a podcast in his mind. Yeah. Uh, I'll be out there, and then uh, I've got shows around New York for the rest of the winter uh, that can be found on my website and my pinned tweet, and I don't really have anything else until early next year. Megabus tour. I won a golden Megabus ticket. They're letting me ride Megabuses for free, so I'm coming everywhere. He's the king of Megabus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> king yeah. of Megabus. If he wants to ride king it with me, bus. I think I can buy extra tickets. Um, I'll take a whole town to another town. I don't know. Respect your king. Listen to our show. Listen to my other show of Why You Mad, and also sign up for our Patreon for bonus content, extra episodes, all that crap. Uh, Patreon.com. That's it. Right. It's finished. It's finished. Kaklam.